Hey everyone, this is Ben Norton, and you are listening to Rules Based Disorder here on Colin. I do these shows twice a week here, and as always, this will be open for questions. So anyone who's listening, feel free to join the queue, and I'm going to start responding to questions. And I like to open this for a discussion. It's it's a very cool feature. So while I'm waiting for people to go ahead and join the queue. Uh, please go ahead and join. In the meantime, I'm just going to briefly address the latest in the media over the war in Ukraine, because we've seen that in the past few days, today is June 2nd. This June, we're a few months into the the new phase of the war in Ukraine, and a lot of the Western media is coming up and admitting basically that Ukraine has been losing this war badly and that the propaganda that it's been bombarding the world with since February 24th was exactly that propaganda, disinformation. So just in the first few minutes here, while people are joining the queue, I'm going to mention two articles that were just published in the mainstream English language media. One is in The Guardian which is a British mainstream newspaper. It's their version of the New York Times. It's really the voice of the British national security state. It's very closely linked to the British intelligence agencies. And it published an article today, June 2nd, titled, Russia is winning the economic war and Putin is no closer to withdrawing troops. And this is written by Larry Elliott, who is the economics editor at The Guardian. So it's it's pretty revealing. And he says uh, openly, quote, things are going very badly indeed. And then he says, you know, sanctions were imposed on Putin. Actually, they were not just imposed on Putin. They were imposed on the entire country of Russia and were meant to hurt more than 100 million Russians. But he, he says that uh, the first set of economic measures were introduced immediately after the invasion when it was assumed Ukraine would capitulate within days, that didn't happen with the result that the sanctions have gradually been intensified. There is though no immediate sign of Russia pulling out of Ukraine. And he notes that the sanctions have had the perverse effect of driving up the cost of Russia's oil and gas exports, massively boosting its trade balance and financing its war effort. (laughs) So, uh, I mean, what he doesn't mention also is that one of the main reasons that that's happened is because other countries have refused to boost their energy exports and their oil production. They're riding out this wave because a lot of them actually are making money. So specifically, we know that the U.S. went to Saudi Arabia and tried to pressure Saudi Arabia to increase its oil production that would drop the prices which would make it easier to get off of Russian oil. And Saudi Arabia said no, which is actually, I mean, that's a whole other conversation for another day. It's, it's a very interesting development. And furthermore, OPEC nations said that they're not going to increase their production. They're continuing to, to follow the plan that they had before the new phase of this war in Ukraine began in February 24th. So that when you have this crisis and you don't have countries that are willing to continue to increase production that would drop the price, that means that Russia has been able to continue exporting its oil at higher prices. So uh, here we have the Guardian acknowledging that. 
And then they, he, this article also talks about that the, that Europe is gradually weaning itself off its dependency on Russian energy, but it acknowledges that the ruble is still strong. And they, you know, the article talks about the meeting of the World Economic Forum and the International Monetary Fund estimates that Russia's economy will shrink by 8.5% this year because of the lack of exports to the West. But it, it, he also continues to note the brutal inflation that this has fueled. And here, again, this is in The Guardian, quote, the UK's annual inflation rate stands at 9%, its highest in 40 years. Petrol prices have hit a record high, and the energy price cap is expected to increase by seven to 800 pounds a year. So this is The Guardian, which is, has been one of the main cheerleaders for the proxy war in Ukraine, the proxy war against Russia. This is The Guardian acknowledging that the Western economic war on Russia has, one, not succeeded in its goal to destabilize and devastate the Russian economy, and two, has fueled the largest inflation crisis in 40 years. And I should say that that the U.S. has also said that the inflation in the United States is at the highest rate in 40 years. So this is a very revealing article. And then I'm going to quote one other article here in this introduction. And this is in the New York Times. And this is not by by someone who works directly for the Times. That Guardian article was revealing because it was the economics editor at the Guardian. This article in the New York Times is written by a contributing columnist. And he's kind of like the, the token pro-Trump voice at the New York Times. Because pretty much everyone there is anti-Trump. And... They have like a few so-called, in scare quotes, like smart conservatives, intellectual Trump types. And this guy, Christopher Caldwell, is one of the main people who contributes to the Times, who fills that role. And he works with a think tank, the Claremont Institute, which is like this right wing think tank that's funded by billionaires and is associated with like the pro-Trump wing of so-called intellectual conservatism. So this is a certain faction of, you know, the billionaire funded right wing and on foreign policy. Sometimes they diverge of a little bit. I mean, they're still extremely anti-China. They're still extremely anti-Iran. But when it comes to Russia, they tend to be a little more realist, foreign policy realist. And that's mostly because they want the U.S. to ally with Russia against China. So they disagree with some of the neocons who want wars, who want war in both Russia and China at the same time. So anyway, this article in the New York Times, that's the perspective it's written from this guy, Christopher Caldwell. But it was published in the New York Times, which is basically a U.S. government media outlet. It's de facto U.S. state media. And it's titled, The War in Ukraine May Be Impossible to Stop and the U.S. Deserves Much of the Blame. This was published on May 31st. And what's funny about this article is that it acknowledges many of the points that, you know, anti-imperialists and the anti-war left have been saying that we've been saying since the beginning of this new phase of the war on February 24th. And we have been accused of being so-called Russian, pro-Russian propagandists or spreading so-called Russian disinformation. Well, here, finally, the New York Times admits this several months after the beginning of this 
this new phase of the conflict. But the New York Times column, it begins quoting a top advisor to the former right-wing president of France, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy. And in this uh, article, he notes that the former advisor to this French president, Sarkozy, he said that he warned that Europe and the United States were sleepwalking, he said, into war with Russia. And that was a reference to World War One. Now, at this guy, Adam Johnson, who's a great journalist, has has written about the propaganda use of ideas like sleepwalking into war and how like, there are all there was this propaganda after the war, in, the second war in Iraq after 2003. There are these propaganda articles that were kind of trying to whitewash the criminality of the U.S. invasion by claiming that the U.S. was sleepwalking into war and sleepwalking into crisis and disaster. That's obviously propaganda. I mean, the West is not sleepwalking into war with Russia. The, the West is diving headfirst into war with Russia. And the West is waging a proxy war on Russia. As former State Department official Elliot Cohen boasted in the Atlantic magazine, boasting of a proxy war. As Defense Secretary and Raytheon lobbyist Lloyd Austin said in a congressional hearing, the U.S. is is aiming at weakening Russia, as he said. And as President Biden said in a speech in Poland, the U.S. is targeting the Kremlin and is seeking to overthrow Putin and the Russian government. So, okay, sleepwalking is is a very euphemistic way of saying it. But anyway, I'll continue with this article here. It, it acknowledges that, here, here's a quote, the United States has helped turn this tragic, local, and ambiguous conflict into a potential world conflagration. And he's, he's quoting this guy who is the advisor to French president, former president Sarkozy. And he says, he argues, this is a quote, he argues, quote, the West, led by the Biden administration, is giving the conflict a momentum that may be impossible to stop. And then it acknowledges, I want to point out that the New York Times published an article attacking me personally, claiming that I was spreading a conspiracy theory because I pointed out the fact that the U.S. government sponsored a violent coup d'etat in Ukraine in 2014. I was smeared in the pages of the New York Times as a conspiracy theorist. Well, here in this op-ed in the New York Times, it admits that, quote, in 2014, the United States backed an uprising and its final stages, a violent uprising against the legitimately elected Ukrainian government of Viktor Yanukovych. So they didn't use the word coup, but that's what they're describing is a coup, a violent uprising against a legitimately elected president. So once again, Here's the New York Times finally admitting that there was a U.S.-backed coup. Of course, they don't say it openly, but that's all. That's basically what they're doing. Now that the war has has clearly turned against Ukraine, and now that the U.S. is trying to find a, a, a soft ramp out of the conflict, and then he talks about Crimea, and he talks about how in November 2021, the U.S. and Ukraine signed a charter for strategic partnership that called for Ukraine to join NATO and affirmed a, quote, unwavering commitment 
to re reintegrating Crimea into Ukraine. So acknowledging that the U.S. as recently as November was basically threatening war on Russia by claiming that Ukraine was going to take back Crimea, which was part of the Russian Federation after a democratic referendum voted on by the people of Crimea. So acknowledging that the U.S. was indirectly pushing for a military war with Russia as recently as November of last year. That's three months before Russia sent its troops into Ukraine. So then the article quotes this, once again, this French advisor to former President Sarkozy, who says that this U.S. declaration of trying to take back Crimea, quote, convinced Russia that it must attack or be attacked. So this is once again confirming everything that we've been saying for months now in the pages of the New York Times. And then it continues and talks about the Western arming of Ukraine and saying, since 2018, Ukraine has received U.S.-built Javelin anti-tank missiles, Czech artillery, and Turkish Bayraktar drones, and other NATO interoperable weaponry. The United States and Canada have lately sent up-to-date British-designed M777 howitzers that fire GPS-guided Excalibur shells, and President Biden just signed into law a $40 billion military aid package. So once again, confirming that this Western arming of Ukraine has been going on for years and includes very heavy weaponry. That was this proxy war on Russia was waged going back several years, not just since February. And, you know, the article keeps talking. It goes on and I'm not going to summarize much more, but I think it's very revealing that this article was finally published in the New York Times after the, after so many months of propaganda. And it's now admitting many of these facts that for months now have been attacked as so-called Russian disinformation. So it, it, it's further proof of this claim that I, that, that this, uh, you know, this, this thing I've often repeated over the years that the New York Times will eventually finally admit the truth but only after it's too late to actually have a tangible impact on the conflict. So it will much later admit that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. It will later admit that, no, it's, it's false that Muammar Gaddafi, the Libyan leader, gave Viagra to his soldiers and encouraged them to sexually assault women. That was false, although it was printed in the New York Times and later admitted to be false. It will later admit that, no, Iraqi soldiers did not pull babies out of incubators in Kuwait. That was a lie spread by the New York Times. And years later, it admitted the truth. So this is yet another example of the New York Times finally admitting something when it's too late to actually have an impact. But with that said, there's quite a few people in the queue here. So I'm just going to go ahead and start. And I'll start with uh, Sele. Hi. How you doing? cold but <laughs> <laughs> i had two questions now i have like two thousand um yes well, um, one thing that i don't know if it's the same uh, article in the guardian that also said this guy um the they call it the, in spanish the governor of the bank of england so it's like the central bank or something andrew bailey 
uh, he said that the one that that stated, well, he spoke apparently. He's like uh, the secretary of the treasurer or something like that. Uh, he is. I I look for the right title of the guy. Um, well, he said that yes, that uh, what you said exactly about inflation, and that also he fears the worst hunger in the history of the entire world for the most poor. Wow. So it's yes, it's it's, it's it's. I think it was well, it was another article then, but uh, yes, he said that, and he's he's like the he's an official. I mean, he's like a. a Como si fuera el jefe del Banco Central en un país. Yeah, the head of the central bank. Yeah, something like that. Um, well, uh, that oh, um, about that, that also about what you said uh, about the economy, the economy of Russia. They clearly been prepared for sanctions, so it's really good that there's a country that that can prove that uh, they can live without dollars that because it would be great if the the dollar stops being the the i tiene un nombre well the the main the currency global reserve currency exactly mm-hmm. yeah la reserva la reserva yes exactly uh, and they can prove in it their I mean their economy didn't collapse like like Cubas or Venezuelas that were really, really it's cruel what you're doing, what they're doing. But um, the thing there is that I'll be really glad if it wasn't for the consequences because uh, the consequences of the sanctions are affecting more poor countries than Russia. Mm-hmm. Because of the, I mean, they are the, the prices are increasing everywhere. The oil prices in countries and also wheat and also grain. So it's the the United States is actually hurting many, many, many other countries more than it's hurting Russia, which is really bizarre. Exactly. Uh, yes, it's, it's cruel uh, because it's, it's the most, I mean, it's not hurting Europe. They can recover. And then 9% inflation, really? <laughs> They're so sad. I mean, we ended last year with Co- 50. And coming from Argentina, that doesn't yeah, sound very high. We're about to hit 70 this year. I mean, it's always crazy here. It's insane. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, solo 9%, no. wow. Ojalá yes, que fuera solo 9%. Okay, <laughs> okay. No, oh, so much mess on 9%. No, no. And congratulations for the, it's it's great when they attack you. I mean, they, there's the right people attack you. <laughs> In a way, they they put your name out there, and they're there. It's kind of a, you should be kind of proud. It's good. You you bother them. And then uh, the other well, that's a question I have to ask you that is not directly. Uh, Related to that, but is about um, well, you about Davos. Have you follow any of that? A little bit, yeah. The World Economic Forum. Yes, uh, there's. Um, I, I'll be really brief if I can because the um, the uh, I listen to uh, to 
Uh, the name, the last name is Freight, uh, declaring for Bernie Sanders, declaring for the Senate of the United States. Uh, he gave a well, he gave a really good testimony. He uh, spoke about why inflation was not being driven just by the war, but for the concentration of the capital of of certain. Um, certain markets or certain companies that are not monopolies but oligopolies oligopolies how to uh, oligopolies yeah yeah and they is that very easy uh, we call it marcadores de precios it's really easy for them to get together to put a price and there's no competition so in a, in a it's supposed to be the main thing in a capitalist country to control prices so they put the price that they want and people are forced to pay it because they don't have any other alternative and they he spoke about the, how the one percent and then the ten percent but especially one percent he, he told that this they were he said it in numbers I don't remember them but how the this really increased the gains of the companies but they didn't increase the salaries that the was they did they did they, they increased it less than the inflation so it the, it's not really a benefit because it doesn't re- relate to your pocket and um, they and they also didn't invest in any infrastructure or anything like that. What they did was they went and buy back their own actions. Mm-hmm. So their they stocks. increased the price, the stocks. So they increased the, the the stock prices. So it benefits the the first. They they are the one percent that gets benefited the first time, and then the, the other ten percent of the population of the country that are the the ones that have really invested in stocks and make money out of nothing. So, related to that, there was, um, there is like this neoliberal, I, that this thing that they keep calling monetarism, that the inflation only, yeah, is only a cause, you must have heard that, every neoliberal says it. It's just <laughs> a cause of printing a lot of money. Oh, that's because they're printing a lot of money. Uh, well, it's supposed to be that the economy base has has a size, and when you increase it, there's more money in the market, and that causes inflation because there are more offers of money and the same uh, amount of products. So that was that is mainly what they say is the theory of inflation, not because. The, the the people are taking advantage of it. Never Jeff Bezos would ever think of doing that. Exactly. Like that, for example, <laughs> yeah, that's the main, and it's falling apart everywhere because when here uh, there was uh, oh well, I uh, there in 2018 the the F uh, when when Trump was president, the IMF gave Argentina the biggest. Mm-hmm. Fifty-three uh, billion dollars, the biggest loan in IMF history. Yes, it wasn't fifty. It was uh, uh, the yes, the the um, the standby was fifty-seven, but they only released forty-four because the president lost lost the the first Macri. elections. Yeah, mm-hmm. Macri lost in the primaries, and so they cut it. I mean, we all thought that it was uh, to finance his campaign. 
because it was clear. I mean, they 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 just said, "Oh, we don't let you do any anything else uh, of, of the accord." They are called um, facilidades extendidas. These these loans that is uh, okay. I I sign something, but I don't give it to you uh, all the time. I uh, all at once. In, it depends like, on some evaluations. I my, my understanding is I think there are special bonds, right? Basically, it's called yeah, or standby loans. I think they call it in English, standby, because they release they they keep evaluating the country and they keep releasing this loan. But they it don't was give it. it was the state that was doing that, right? Fue el estado que lo hizo. Yes, yes, no, but Trump so was like friends bond. with Trump yeah. was friends with Macri long mm -hmm. before he was. They were president since they were young, so it's not. I mean, nobody understood that, and uh, the there came this uh, report from the IMF itself after a while, uh, and said that uh, it criticized a lot of things, and they this left wing. IMF apparently said that, but they wrote it that uh, exactly that that the Argentina's um, phenomenon was not, as they were told by the government, uh, a monetary issue, but in this case it was a multicausal. It has many causes mm -hmm. uh, and. The concentration of the markets and the, the unfair distribution, and it's really. It's really, uh, what's the, they recognizing that is a big thing. So uh, the thing is, it wasn't for the campaign. Of the 44, about 42, 43 fled the country. That's, that is said by the, by the IMF, okay? So all this money they were put in, that Trump said to put on Argentina was so people, so they won't lose the BlackRock, the the big big companies, the big investors, they cash in and left the country. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was uh, it was the same amount. So it's almost like ridiculous. They, they give you this kind of money and it flares the country. Anyway, that's Trump. Then uh, the current minister of economy. Uh, it's supposed to be um, from Siglitz School, not the Chicago University, like the the yeah, like before. they say, like neo neo Keynesianism. Yeah, but Stiglitz is like really well. I heard him speak. He's really nice, and he says things that I don't know might make sense or not. But uh, it was really, really telling that when I look in, you know that that. Davos program, the new leaders were Justin Trudeau, um, um, Emmanuel Macron. Mm -hmm. They belong the, from that. Well, uh, it's, the, it's, it's cultivating the new generation of neoliberal leaders. Exactly, exactly. And Schwab's the the founder of the of Davos of uh, of the Economic Forum. Uh, he said that it was really. 
he was really excited because he went into governments and, and see all these leaders that one is the minister of this and one so <laughs> it's like they infiltrating the governments but they're not even hiding it anymore he was really excited about that he has a plan or something that it's called you'll own nothing but you'll be happy or something like exactly, that exactly yeah 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 it's terrifying neo-feudalism well, I, mm -hmm. I found in the page, in the official page, that our Minister of Economy uh, also belongs to that the Stiglitz one, which is it's, it's, it's just supposed to be, I mean, it's another ideology. And nowadays, there is this uh, bright Bolsonaro kind of figure that is rising so rapidly. Like, Millet. you know, Millet. Millet. Yeah, it's, it's similar to uh, the rise is like the in, now in Colombia, mm -hmm. you know, the one that is second. That Yeah, Rodolfo Hernández. Yeah, it was, they, he took notoriety so fast that it was, uh, well, that's what I heard. I, I don't follow it, but I, but I, it's like he ascended really fast, or am I wrong? Are, are you talking about Javier Millet or are you talking about? Uh, Both of them. Yeah, both of them. I'm well, comparing. Do you think I, I know that Milay would like to be president, but from the the research I've done and the people I've talked to in Argentina, it doesn't seem like in this upcoming election he really has a chance. Maybe, I don't think so, but but well, I, I'll finish. And then, uh, well, what uh, a journalist found out, he researched it, but there was you know Li Fang from the Intercept. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, he wrote a note and to make it short. Uh, Millet is receiving funds from the Heritage Foundation, the and the, Atlas, the Atlas Network as well, right? Exactly. The exactly. So my question was, and now please, yeah, I let you talk. It was uh, there's difference. They're all the same, or there is difference? Like there is Davos against Trump against the Gold Brothers, or is all the same? No, good question. I mean. It's not all the same. These are all different divisions within the capitalist class, right? There are a bunch of billionaire oligarchs who control everything, and they all have different political views, and some of them are pretty pretty significantly different. So the Koch brothers represent a certain kind of strain of thought that is very uh, conservative, but also in terms of some of their social policy, they, are, uh, they have libertarian views, so they also support immigration. And they support some more liberal policies in cultural politics, as opposed to some of the more traditional conservative types who are talking about, you know, traditional family values and kind of patriarchal traditions and all of that. So the Koch brothers do kind of have a libertarian bent and the Milai types. Uh, well, we know that Javier Milai. He's no, but Milai, he's against, he's against everything. Yeah. He wants to. He wants to ah, okay. So. Wait, I'm confused. Well, but but he calls himself libertario, ah, libertarian. Yes, but he's against abortion. He's he's a mis he's misogynist, but the worst. And he wants to well, that's the guns thing. He's a libertarian. He wants to put guns in people's like you. The world needs that. A lot of Argentinians with guns. Oh God, yeah. Well, oh, God, it, imagine a, a football team no. in Latin America. Of course, the the issue of abortion is much more complex and all that. So yeah, like. But he does, I do know, you obviously know much more than I do, but from the speeches and, and videos I've seen of 
Milay, he definitely has, he calls himself libertario. He talks about like exactly. libertarianism and stuff. And Friedman, that, Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman, Murray Rothbard. Exactly. So that's, mm -hmm. and, and he is, we know, I and mean, we have the documents, he's funded specifically by the Atlas Network, which is a, li it's a libertarian group. It, in Spanish, it's the La Red Atlas. And it's funded by a bunch of billionaires who are, they are kind of libertarian Koch brothers types. And also, I mean, there's a lot of over, a lot of crossover between them and the Koch brothers and the Heritage Foundation who are kind of more traditional conservatives. So they represent a, a certain wing of like the billionaire oligarch capitalist class, but the World Economic Forum people tend to be much, they tend to be the liberals. They are, and in terms of U.S. politics, they would be much more closely affiliated with the Democratic Party. So, I mean, it does represent two kind of strains. Like, you could Wait, say... Wait, the Democratic Party talking like Hillary Clinton or talking like... Exactly. Okay. Well, I mean, Bernie Sanders technically is not a Democrat. And, I mean, he did run as a Democrat. But the Democratic Party is thoroughly right-wing. It's, it's completely neoliberal. There are a small handful of progressives, but they don't represent the party at all. I mean... The Democratic Party is deeply embedded in all of this. And the World Economic Forum types would be, you know, someone like Makri would represent that kind of politics. And you could say that, like, Mileo is, is, is even more right wing. I mean, the Econ World Economic Forum is very exactly. neoliberal. It's very right wing. But it's for the, the Trump, Trump, Bolsonaro, Milay types, they see the World Economic Forum as left wing, which it's absolutely not. I mean, as we saw in, That's you mentioned funny. they released this, 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 this video they released where they talked about like their 10 point program for the future. And one of them was that you'll own nothing, but you'll be happy. And that's because everything will be owned by corporations and you'll, you'll rent it, although rent it to you, like Netflix or, you know, some of these subscribe subscription services. So you're not going to own anything. You'll just have to rent it. So, I mean, they represent a certain kind of faction, but they're all, they're all beholden to different billionaire oligarch interests. And the World Economic Forum is not in any way left-wing or progressive. I mean, it's really weird to see how certain right-wingers have started attacking Davos and the World Economic Forum and claiming that it's like secretly socialist when in fact it's the exact opposite. And the World Economic Forum has constantly, if you looked at, if you look at the economic programs that it has supported and, and advocated on behalf of, it's always been neoliberal economic programs. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense now. You 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 put the dots together. So the Koch brothers and Trump would be something that they were with Macri. It makes a lot of sense. Well, the um, Koch brothers at first were against Trump. No, no, then... no, no. The Koch brothers. No, no. I'm sorry. Um, yes, go on. Well, as I say, the, the, what's interesting about Trump is at the beginning, some of these billionaires were against him. And then a lot of them later on, they supported him. They they grew to like him because at first they were afraid. And at first the Koch brothers actually were criticizing Trump and were kind of hinting that they might support Hillary Clinton. But then later on, like many of these billionaires, they all joined Trump. So I think that's what's happening similarly now with, with Millet. Like if he actually becomes president, And hopefully it doesn't happen. But if he does, 
some of the people who claim to oppose him now, I think a lot of them will just end up supporting him because he advances their economic interests. That's how it always is. Yes, exactly. And what's scary is that uh, what what you think we think, or maybe your friends told you, is like Mirei culturally doesn't fit here. It's like there's no way, like you think there's no normal sane person that would vote him. But they thought the same about Trump. Mm-hmm. Don't they? Well, they yeah, that's what's complicated. I mean, there's a lot of contradictions on these because Trump, when he ran, Trump, I mean, I think secretly Trump is not anti-abortion. He probably supports abortion. I mean, he was a... Of he was a, he's not. He doesn't care. Yeah, he was a New York Democrat for a long time. But, I mean, that that's why, like... In the U.S., these political parties don't really mean anything. <laughs> so it, Trump, then he he got all the evangelical voters who supported him, and they all hate abortion. And yeah, and Trump is the one who put in these crazy right wing Supreme Court justices who are going to overturn Roe v. Wade, which is the court decision that that makes abortion a guaranteed right for women in the United States. So yeah. these things are very. These issues are very contradictory because at the end of the day, a lot of these billionaire oligarchs, they'll, they don't really care about abortion or any of that stuff. What they really care about is tax breaks. And, and Trump delivered the largest tax break to billionaires and millionaires in history, which is the largest upward transfer of wealth to the rich, you know, 1% elite in the U.S. So at the end of the day, that's all the Koch brothers care about. So even if, they have some disagreements and other issues. At the end of the day, they'll still fund you if, if you cut their taxes. Okay, so the right wing here now uh, it would be that, and the centrists like Peronistas or that are right now are more Davos like because they are not exactly exactly maybe like a like Sergio Massa or something. It would be like that. Massa is exactly Davos, mm-hmm. but uh, the one that brought um, I mean Cristina the other day. He, she gave a speech and she said, for the last time, I'm going to confirm it. I'm a capitalist. I'm not. Really? Yes. I didn't see that speech. Uh, it was, uh, they, they gave her an honorary, she's, she's very funny speaking. I mean, I, I, I'm not, I really not, I'm not Peronista because there's a second, I'm from the left. I mean, I'm, I vote for the left and Peronismo is not the left. There's this confusion and, if you take men, I mean, it's not the left. That's for another day, but it's definitely not. But yeah. he's so funny when she speaks that I, 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 I tend to watch it. And he, she said that it was, uh, they gave her an honorary something in a university. So, well, it was very, very enlightening. And the, the last thing, because I, the others I will left for another day, uh, it's very sad what you said about the coup. It's very sad that sometimes people really, really start the coup and they put their bodies and they put the, I think about the 2001 here that it, that it was, it wasn't long enough for, I don't think other people, inter, other countries interfere, but they put their bodies. I, I, I think Ukrainians did start this, like Syrians started this movement that was co-opted or unfair. Mm-hmm. But the people in the streets, they believe they are doing this, and they they're putting themselves in risk for 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 what they believe is the right thing. Or they are against. It doesn't matter if they were lied to. 
I mean, it matters, but it doesn't matter. And it's, it's so sad because people put themselves in risk for what they believe, okay? And they are sometimes used as puppets and and they die or get 10 years worse or something like that. And it's, Okay. Yeah, I agree. I agree with note. you. It's it's true. It's I mean, it's sad that that what happens in a lot of these coups, especially what you you know what uh, Hugo Chavez called the golpe suave, the soft coups, what or the golpe blando. What they often do in these is they they do and the so-called rep color revolutions, right? Las revoluciones de colores. They do exploit people's good intentions. Color revolution. I don't know that. Color revolution. Yeah, that's. So like in, in the 1990s, all of the former Soviet countries that some of them had oh. still kind of left-leaning governments with, you know, state control of over significant yeah. assets. And then in the 1990s, there were a series yeah. of these kind of soft coups. They're basically mm-hmm. largely... Yes, yes, I didn't know they were called color. Yeah. Um, and, yes. So, I mean, in many of these, there are people with sometimes good intentions who do want change, but they don't realize that they're participating in a process that's that's being stage managed by the U S by the CIA, by big corporate interests. So I agree. It's sad. Don't you think that sometimes they, um, they take something that start, I mean, not in the case of Ukraine is clearly not, but maybe in Syria or that they take advantage of something that is going on. That for sure, absolutely. Ah, uh, for the Syrians, I, I I know a couple of Syrians that came like in, during the war. The and they are here. They are really oh, they're so happy. But they, I told them to come from Syria because they are really, uh, really like the really like the country. And what they told me was sound so sincere. They really, they really dislike the, the government and, and it's, it's, it sounds like that. Like they started something and then it was completely. Yeah. Well, it. there were a lot of people who did participate in the protests who later regretted it when it became this proxy war. And, and at the same time, we should also keep in mind that many of the people who left were the people who opposed where there still are tens of millions of Syrians who stayed. And no, who- but he left, he left because they, apparently they killed their whole family. I mean, it was, I mean, he left not in, <laughs> he left, he was in, I don't remember which, it was in a bad part of. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's also why I, we should always oppose these wars is because even though there are people who have like, you know, different political views, when when it becomes a war and then people start dying and it just becomes more complicated than politics itself. So, yeah, my pens my pens travel all around. I think you wrote about this it's all around Latin America, trying to convince presidents that to invade Venezuela. Yeah, to support them. To, and he came. Uh, Macri even said no. And in Argentina, in fact, uh, El Cohete de la Luna. I don't know if you saw that article. The El Cohete de la Luna published this thing mess, with the uh, general paleo something paleo something is the paleo. general what who's the, the el jefe de las fuerzas armadas de argentina oh uh, maybe I, 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 that that part is like we yes we we left we left the penniless and they have not even i don't know if they had bullets and we forgot about them but yes it might be i don't know well, lots to talk about. I, I always appreciate it. Uh, Sele, siempre es un gusto hablar con, 
con la gente ahí en Argentina, entonces debemos hablar más en el futuro. Pero okay. I do want to get to the other people yes. here. And the last thing I would comment is that uh, if they had said yes, Venezuela would have been kind of Ukraine. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So, thank you very much. Y muchas gracias a, a vos. Y siempre es un gusto. Hablamos más, eh, más adelante. Día. Muchas gracias. <laughs> Bye. Uh, cool. So great discussion there. And sorry, there's, there's quite a big queue here. So, um, I'm going to, I'm going to take questions from everyone in the queue here. Um, so that's five more people. Try to please keep your questions a bit short here. I'll respond to everyone and then, uh, and then I'm going to wrap up. So I'll probably do another half an hour here. So there's five questions here. I'll start with Lance. Go ahead, Lance. Hi, sorry. Can you can you hear me all right? I can. Yeah. How you doing? Perfect. I'm doing. Um, I just had a couple questions. I know you're. Uh, are you current? Are you still in Nicaragua? Yeah, I live here. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, I actually have uh, some connections with Nicaragua. I was there last time I was there though was I guess about six years ago. Um, oh, in the Chichigalpa area, I have uh, some connections with um, <laughs> some interesting connections with a lot of the. Uh, it seems to be, to me at least, relatively shady nonprofit organizations that are in a lot of the <laughs> um, area. Um, so not all of them. Uh, I, some of the ones that I've been more familiar with are actually they're they're leaving the area right now. Understandably, it's been a bit uh, a bit sketchy uh, on both sides of that sort of thing. But my question is, what if any? Uh, I've been doing some research. I, I wrote a book about Christian nationalism and stuff. What connection is there that you've seen between kind of like the Pentecostal and evangelical churches in supporting what seems to be very far right wing um, attempts at the government? Yeah. So these are, this is a really good question and it could be a discussion for an hour. I'll keep my answer really short, but <laughs> it's actually interesting because in Latin America, evangelical Christianity and Pentecostal Christianity is very contradictory because they're, of course, is a very far-right current, and not just in Nicaragua, but across Latin America. In Brazil, for instance, the evangelical church was crucial in getting Bolsonaro elected. But yeah. I should acknowledge, there actually, surprisingly, is also a left-wing current within you know, evangelical and, and also Pentecostal Christianity. And here in Nicaragua, the Sandinistas have been very strategic and very clever in cultivating certain evangelical um, groups. And I should say that in, in Nicaragua, when people talk about Christianity, it's a very Christian country, but they do it in an interesting way. They talk about Cristianismo, so your Christianity, and you could say, soy cristiano, and then they distinguish that with católico, and they're not the same thing, yeah. even though obviously yeah. Catholics are Christians. But so the country at this point is pretty div evenly divided, And the number of Catholics is decreasing pretty substantially. So at the during the triumph of the revolution in 1979, the country was 99% Catholic, according to a census at the time. And since the, 1979, that number of Catholics has decreased and decreased and is now slightly under half Catholic. It's in like maybe 46, 48%. And slightly over half what they, they would call, they call here evangelical, but when they say evangelical, they mean non-denominational Christian. Yeah. Christian. Yeah. 
And there are many Pentecostals. So what's interesting is at the beginning of the revolution and during the armed struggle, there were a lot of liberation theologists involved who were Catholics. And there were numerous priests actually who were killed, including um, in the, t the town of San Juan del Sur, which is a popular tourist place mm -hmm. in the southern part of Nicaragua. There's great surfing beaches and there's a big monument to this, uh, to Gaspar Garcia, who was this Spanish uh, communist priest. He was a, he was a Marxist and he was a priest. And I think he actually got in trouble with like the, the Spanish church. And anyway, so he came to Nicaragua and he said, he, he realized that if he wanted to be a true Christian, that he had to be a communist and help the poor and all this. And he fought with the Sandinistas and he was martyred and he's still a big revolutionary hero and there's monuments to him across the country. So also when the, at the, during the triumph of the revolution, when they created the, the, what they called the junta, which at first included members of the right wing to try to build like this national democratic coalition government that would bring in elements of the national bourgeoisie with including Chamorro and all of that. Anyway, there were two Catholic priests who were part of that junta. And then they also had major uh, major ministers, including the foreign minister, uh, who was also a priest. And then, uh, there was also a very famous priest who was a minister who was a poet as well, Ernesto Cardenal. So there were priests involved and a lot of Catholics. But what happened is that there, there were a lot of divisions that emerged within the Catholic Church. And then famously, John Paul II, who was a very right wing anti communist pope, he came down to Nicaragua. And this was part of something organized with the CIA, which, by the way, the CIA in the Ronald Reagan administration was run by a bunch of right wing Catholics who were very yeah. close to the church. And, and to open and, day guys, right? Yeah, William Casey. And so yeah. anyway, what happened is that they worked with the pope to basically kind of excommunicate the Sandinistas when when John Paul II came. He refused to talk with the Sandinistas and he refused to basically acknowledge them and it became this big scandal. And, and then also this is at the time of, you know, the Contra war and all of that. So the Catholic church became much more associated with the right wing. So fast forwarding a lot since that time period, uh, the Sandinistas, they, they haven't, they've had a very complicated relationship with the church, but it's been very antagonistic for the most part. So, when Ortega, who's Catholic, when he came back in 2007, in 2006, he did this new rebranding campaign to, you know, run on a, kind of a more center left campaign in 2006. And then he promised that he would not go after the church. He basically made this deal that the church would be allowed to operate. And as long as they didn't go after it, go, like target the government. So it, it was this kind of uneasy stalemate from 2006 mm -hmm. and 2007 forward. But what happened is over time, evangelicals became more and more Sandinista. There are a lot of evangelicals who are Sandinista. And also what happened at the same time is the church began turning more and more against the government. And in 2018, the Catholic church played a key major role in the coup attempt, very violent coup attempt in 2018. There are videos of Catholic priests leading some of these marches. And at the end of the marches, they often got very violent and people would, you know, shoot mortar cannons at the police and, and all this stuff. And so there were, there were also priests who, when 
violent groups took over and occupied, for instance, one of the universities, the main, the main uh, public university, Unan, and also Uni, when they took over the uh, engineering school, and they just ransacked these universities. Priests would come, to, Catholic priests, including the archbishop, would come to like these universities and like bless them and, and call for overthrowing the government and all this stuff. So after that point, th- there was a hard split between the Sandinistas and the Catholic Church. And since 2018, a lot of Sandinistas who were Catholics have become evangelicals or just some kind of non-denominational Protestant. So especially since 2018, there's been a massive uh, move of left-wing evangelicals and Pentecostals and, uh, and Protestants. And what's interesting is now more and more, I mean, the, the government has been very careful with this because Ortega still is Catholic and he still claim, you know, he talks about being Catholic. They're trying not to alienate Catholics who do support the Sandinistas. But what's weird is now, it, for a lot of people who think about evangelicals in the U.S. and associate them with the right wing, they think that in Nicaragua, many like Pentecostals and evangelicals are right wing. But actually, increasingly, many of them are Sandinistas. So it's a very complicated issue because it is true that in the 1980s, the Ronald Reagan administration engaged in a policy of encouraging evangelical Christianity because they assumed that it would be right wing and anti-communist. And this was a way at combating liberation theology, which was associated with Catholicism. And we know, for instance, that in Guatemala, the brutal right wing dictator Efrain Rios Montt, Efrain Rios Montt was a hardcore evangelical. He was a hardcore Christian Zionist. He thought that the Maya population were all godless, atheists, you know, barbarians, animals. And that was one of the reasons that he engaged in genocide against the Maya population. It was a, it was so, a church tour. Uh, one of his representatives did a church tour through California where, yeah, gave these speeches about how they were demons and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a counterinsurgency strategy against liberation theology. And what's interesting is that it's resulted in also creating a new base for the left and not just in Nicaragua. So in Brazil, what's really weird is that evangelicals were a huge base for the Workers' Party and for Lula da Silva, but also they're a huge base for Bolsonaro. So mm-hmm. I think what's interesting is that this counterinsurgency strategy, it didn't really work. And it's kind of created this very weird, fragmented version of Christianity. And the last thing I'll say here is that it, in Nicaragua, so I was raised Catholic. My family's Catholic. I'm, I'm a non-believer. I'm an apostate, but I was raised Catholic. And I assumed here that that like everyone would be part of like a bigger church. But in reality, what Christianity has come to look like in Nicaragua is that a lot of and there are still a lot of Catholics, but a lot of a slim majority of the population are, you know, non-denominational Christians. And most of them don't belong to like a big church. They belong to a local community church, which mm-hmm which they, they'll sometimes call evangelico or just cristiano, so evangelical, but it actually can be completely different from another evangelical church in, that's based in the community. So it's become very kind of decentralized and it's become very locally oriented. So that, that's the last yeah. thing I'll say about my observations yeah. on Christianity. You know, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I'm a fellow apostate, but I was, grew up evangelical. My parents were... Uh, 
missionaries in Panama. So <laughs> that's an interesting family dynamic. Um, but yeah, I guess uh, I have this one other question I'll do real quick. I kind of, you talked about the, the latest um, election. Uh, now, uh, one of the discussions I have a lot with people um, that I know from Nicaragua who are involved with the evangelical church down there, they claim that it was, uh, you know, he arrested, you know, Ortega arrested all these different people and that's the only reason he got in. And I keep trying to, I mean, from my reading, it doesn't seem that way. Um, but also it's been a little bit tricky trying to find, you know, good sources on information. And I was just curious if you had, uh, any, any, uh, suggestions for good sources for, cause I'm trying to, Right now, I'm just looking up different like election observers and what took place there, and I just really have a hard time finding good sources. I was wondering if you could help out with that. Well, yeah, it's there are very few sources, even in Spanish, because it's a very yeah. small country. But um, what I'll say is the best resource, I mean, is run by people who are solidarity activists who came down in the 70s, and a lot of them stayed, especially mm-hmm. this really good activist. Her name is Nan McCurdy. And she helps run this group called the Alliance for Global Justice. And they have, um, they're, they're really solid politically. They've done a lot of amazing work over the, the decades. Their, their social media presence is pretty weak because they're an older generation and they didn't really, they're not really social media savvy, but they mm-hmm. published this, this newsletter called Nika Notes, which is really good. There's so much good information in there. Also, there's a website, which again is not social media friendly, but it's a compendium of so much good information, which is called Tortilla con Sal. Tortilla con Sal. And okay. it's run by this journalist, this British journalist who's been living in Nicaragua since the 1970s. And he, he came here and he's actually now a Nicaraguan citizen who is an amazing guy. I know him personally. He, he is a wealth of knowledge on Nicaragua. You know, he's got a family down here. He's basically, I mean, he's Nicaraguan. Like he spent half of his, more than half of his life here and he runs that website. But what I will say is that in terms of the political alliances, I think what's interesting is that a lot of the evangelical, and like in the most recent election, for instance, and in even an election before that, a lot of the evangelical groups that, at least the ones that are political, because you probably know that many evangelical groups actually are against engaging in politics. But the ones yeah. that do engage in politics openly, a lot of them supported the Sandinistas. There was only one real attempt at, a, at an evangelical opposition force, and it was led by this guy named Saturnino Serrato. And the guy, he was not very smart because he gave this press conference when this was in 2020, when the U.S. was trying to pressure the right-wing opposition to all unify behind Cristiana Chamorro the daughter of Violeta. And he gave this press conference when they were trying to form this, this civic alliance, they called it, La Alianza Civica. And he gave this press conference in which he said, oh yeah, by the way, uh, because someone asked him about trying to unify the opposition. He said, yeah, we're working on unifying the opposition. We just had a meeting with the U.S. Embassy and also the European Union. And we were, we were all working together and they're, they're, trying to pr- they're, they're working with us to try to unify the opposition. So this is just like some evangelical pastor who was, he's like the leader of this small evangelical opposition party. And he just like let the cat out of the bag. But other, other than him, it's actually very, it surprised me as someone who, when I first came down here several years ago, I was very hesitant. I was, I was very skeptical about evangelical Christianity because in the U S of course, it's pretty universally associated with the most right wing of the Republican party. But 
it's it's weird, but it's interesting to see that there is a progressive evangelical Christianity here. I mean, on abortion, that's just not a non-starter, of course. Yeah. But on other issues, I mean, they're very progressive. Yeah, that's that is very interesting. I'd love at some other point maybe talk to you more about that because in my experience through like Chile and Panama and stuff, all the evangelicals that I've come across in those areas and spoken to, not so much the case, but I do understand Nicaragua is a very unique situation for sure. Yeah, and, and Brazil, I, I know less about in, about oh. it in Brazil, but yeah, there are right wing evangelicals, but it's it's more complicated here. So yeah, yeah great that's question. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Lance. All right, so I'm going to jump now to Aaron. Go ahead. Oh, hey, Ben. How you uh, doing? Hey, you know, I've had the opportunity to speak to you a couple times already, so uh, I see you're up against it here. I think I'll just let some other people have a chance. I will oh, yield thanks. my time to the <laughs> honorable senator from the great state of Maine, but I'll thanks, keep listening. Man. Thanks, man. Cool. Catch up with you later. Yeah, thanks for always joining these chats. I'll, right. I'll be doing another one on Saturday, so if you want to Yeah, yeah, I'm a regular. Saturday. Cool. All right, okay. here's Mike R. Yeah, same with me, Ben. I, I'm listening all the time, <laughs> so you can go to some other folks for the sake of time. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Yeah, like yep. I said, I'll, I'll be doing this again on Saturday, so probably okay, around cool. the same time on Saturday. All right, so here's John. Go, John Harris, go ahead. Hey, uh, John. Sorry, I know you were probably waiting a long time in the queue here. All right, well, uh, I'm not going to kick you off, John. I'm just going to go to Rudy, and then you should come back. I'll come back to you at the end here. So here's Rudy. Buenos dias, Ben. How you doing? <laughs> Buenos dias. Good. <laughs> um, yeah, man, thanks for all you do. Um, one of the things that's been interesting me is like reconciliation processes, you know? And so I thought one of the things that maybe we struggle with is being able to reconcile, you know, in our history. And so if we're looking at like reparation, it's like a reconciliation issue. And I thought if we were sort of more humble, we might be able to learn from other countries so I started looking at like the process in in Africa, in um, Liberia. I've looked at some of it in Rwanda, and at first I was like, "Wow, there's there's a lot of like positives here." Then I was just talking to a Liberian guy, who was telling me it's pretty much like fraught with like there's a lot of um, it's 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 sold to be better than it is, you know, and. Like I saw the Rwandan thing too. Like there's a lot of amazing stuff. There's um I saw one case of um a guy who's living with a guy who had slaughtered basically the guy's wife and his oh children, God. and so like how you manage to forgive such a person all and all of that stuff. And but it's like these guys needed to do it because you well, you got a bunch of rebels who if you don't like get them part of like if you don't get them included in the society you know they're gonna do what they they're gonna do and then you got you know and then people have weapons and stuff like that and people need to go forward and if you have cases where it's like brother versus brothers you know you know neighbor versus neighbor it's it's a very awkward thing to continue with if you don't reconcile so i thought okay let me look at that and so i was wondering 
in Latin America, maybe like there's some cases that you might be able to speak about where, you know, um, people reconcile pretty good and then maybe we can learn something from it. Yeah, well, it's a really good question. The reconciliation processes in Latin America have also been very complex. Uh, there was one in Guatemala. We were talking actually about this dictator, Efrain Rios Montt, who carried out genocide against the indigenous Maya population. And there was a, a, a reconciliation process after the civil war there. And there were civil wars in El Salvador and in Nicaragua here. And I know a little bit about the reconciliation here. In fact, when the Sandinistas came back to power in 2007, they called the government, which it still has this name, the Grun, G-R-U-N, which is the Government of National Unity and Reconciliation. And that's still the official name because, of course, why, why are they saying reconciliation? Because in the 1980s, there was a brutal war here fueled by the CIA, supporting the Contras, these right-wing death squads that killed tens of thousands of people. So the Sandinistas understood that when they came back to power, they had to have some kind of reconciliation to prevent another war from happening. And that's why the government has, it has made a lot of concessions and, you know, some, a lot of the militants, you know, like the hardcore left wing of the Sandinista front, sometimes they're a little frustrated with some of the concessions that the government has made to the opposition. But again, that's just because it's so concerned about preventing a return to violence. And it's, it is kind of revealing. I mean, it says a lot, I think, about, about humans that some of these people who, who did participate in horrible atrocities, they did actually change. And, and I think it's a sign that people, you know, can change. There, there were contra leaders who later even became Sandinistas. And some of them have be, have continued, I mean, even in difficult times since 2018, since the coup attempt and the sanctions and all of this, you know, there were people who were hardcore opposition contras. And it seems like it's a, it's a process that's worked. Now, I know from studying a little bit, not super in depth, but I've read a little bit about the reconciliation process in South Africa, which was led by Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu. And I do know that a lot of people have criticized that process as well. Clearly, you know, there still is kind of like a de facto apartheid in South Africa today. It's not, it's not officially legal, but you know, there was never true like economic redistribution to the degree necessary. So I think when we're talking about these reconciliation processes, I think the ones that succeed are the ones where there's also elements of economic redistribution and significant economic change. So, you know, like, you know, Zimbabwe has been so punished because of its land re reform, its land redistribution away from the white settlers. It, you know, Zimbabwe has never been forgiven and the sanctions have always been aimed at punishing the economy for doing that. But I think that's, Honestly, it's necessary, right? Like, as if you only have a political reconciliation process, but all of the land is still controlled by like these settlers or by these big corporations or by these rich families, it's it's a very incomplete process. So, I mean, you, you I think you probably know more about these processes than I do, but from what I've studied, especially in Central America, the countries that had land reform, specifically in Nicaragua, 
the process was much more effective than in Guatemala. Guatemala never had land reform. And today, in fact, there's a very deep current of repression and racism against the indigenous populations, despite that reconciliation process. So even though, you know, these are people who are, they, they lived through a recent genocide in the 1980s and there was that reconciliation process, the, the oppression against them hasn't really changed that much. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think it just speaks to how willing so many of these people are to just like make peace and just how craven the forces on the other hand are. So you wiped out their mothers, children, all of these things. And these guys are still allowing you to take a decent chunk yet, you know, like these people are sort of never satisfied. It's crazy. Yeah. Can I, can I just say it's, be, I imagine being in your position is pretty difficult, man. Because, like, the thing is, there's we want to help, but you're we're living with like we're dealing with environments that are very difficult sort of to sort of navigate. You know, um, you're like you don't obviously want to participate, bring bloodshed, but you're dealing with like craven monsters who basically. But and then so like you like forces out there that could put up a struggle against the monsters that rule us, and oftentimes and these are human have faults just because human beings have faults, and so it's like how do you choose the right groups you know like who's pure enough kind of thing, and so like oftentimes because we don't wanna. It's easier to just act and just be like, you know, I don't want to get involved because nobody's pure in this kind of thing. But like, I see that you're going out there and then you're talking to people who have different types of beliefs and all kind of things. But ultimately, like somehow you're able to like hedge. I don't know how you do it, but, like, you know, take steps forward. Knowing, you know. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, you cut out a little bit there, but I think I got the gist of most of what you said. I'll say that. I mean, I, I don't think that uh, what I do is really that uh, dangerous. I mean, I'm a journalist and that gives me a layer of protection. So I, I think I actually, uh, the people who are really much, much more worthy of, of, you know, praise are the people who are like from these frontline communities because they, you know, people living in like rural Guatemala or you know, Colombia, we just had the election in Colombia, like people living in these communities in rural areas and campesinos and Afro-Colombians. And like, those are the people who are really putting their necks on the line when it comes to their bodies on the line, when it comes to these processes, because that's very, that's very true, Ben, but we all know that the likes of George Bush really hates the types like you, you know, yeah, 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 I do say though, I mean, I have to say though, that, I mean, being a journalist, of course, there are journalists who are killed and attacked around the world, but it does give me a, a layer of protection that, that makes me a more difficult target. So, you know, I, I have never been to Africa, unfortunately, I've never been to Asia, and I would really like to go and to some of these conflict zones and, 
and to report on some of these issues. But I have been across Latin America. I've been to Colombia, Honduras, uh, you know, these also Ecuador, Venezuela, Bolivia, like areas that had a lot of political violence and during coups and stuff. But I mean, one, there's also white privilege. I mean, I'm a white American, but also I'm a journalist. So, I mean, yeah, I could do something, I guess, a little safer, but I, I, I'm not going to pretend like I'm always in danger because it, it is difficult for them to go after journalists, especially white American journalists. But I, I have to say, though, I mean, I've talked to people and interviewed people and met people in communities who have really been impacted by this, you know, especially when I was in Colombia and when I was in Honduras, like going to rural areas and, and talking with people who have who have had loved ones killed. In fact, I actually, here in Nicaragua, I know a, a Colombian woman who moved here because her father, she comes from a campesino farmer family, and her father was murdered for being a leftist in Colombia. So she and her family members fled to Nicaragua because they knew they would be protected here. So, I mean, like there are so many stories like that. So, yeah, I mean, what I try to do as a journalist is just amplify those stories and educate people on it and and point out the role of of state power, specifically, you know, the U.S. government in supporting a lot of these things. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I didn't mean like, no, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate you like sort of giving the credit to, you know, the people that are living there. And the thing is, like, those guys, though, you know, they have to fight back, you know, but like us who are here to sort of leave the comforts of, you know, uh, that to go and chase, you know, stories that aren't always clear, stories that are always as easily sort of, you know, these guys, when you quote them, you know, they really do not matter to the the powers that be and a lot of us ignorant sort of consumers you know um and it's but if you were to quote somebody in minnesota where i'm from like we see more of the humanity in them so you gotta have to work extra hard to be able to point hey i don't know i don't know if you cut out there rudy can you hear me Hey, uh, Rudy, can you hear me? I think you cut out because I can't hear you. Well, um, oh, there we go. Hey, Rudy, you cut out there. I can hear you now. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. You were saying, you know, you're in Minnesota. Okay. And, and after you saying you were in Minnesota, it, your thought cut out. Okay. Yeah, I was saying that, like, um, I, you, you know, I'm not... I'm saying I'm the credit I'm giving you is like leaving the comforts of the U.S. where yeah. you don't have to fight to be able to like prove somebody's humanity, you know, where because like just look at the Ukrainian thing. I was saying like Biden is saying how nobody's ever treated children this badly, you know, the way that the Russians are ch treating children. And you're like and people like us are wondering, like, what do you mean? We've been starving uh, Venezuelans. We've been bombing or, any children or there's there's no baby there's no baby yeah. formula right now <laughs> like what are you talking <laughs> right right it's 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 crazy but so yeah man i appreciate what you do um i think thank um, you i appreciate it. we we need journalists like you and 
to also like be doing it in Spanish too. And I'm, there's probably plenty of perks that come with like living in a different country and so much that you learn and also being out of your like comfort. It also like, cause oftentimes we talk about the humanity of people and stuff like from the, from afar kind of thing. But then when you actually go and then you speak to people, you're like actually the shit that I was saying, like about like how, how um like uh, capable these people are how engine like how much ingenuity these people have actually it's real shit i can see it you know but when you read it in the books you don't appreciate it as much oftentimes as when you travel there and you can see that this person out here who's working with like 19th century sort of technology you know they got a real brain they have like you know these are real worthy people you know not that they they have to jump through hoops to to show us that they're worthy but like it's you know we're sort of dumb animals sometimes we just need to see it to be to believe it yeah well i appreciate it thank you i mean i will say that one of the advantages is also it's definitely very it's been very good for my mental health not not being in the u.s because when you True. are in the u.s you're you're bombarded by so much propaganda and the, you know, dehumanization of a lot of the world. So being, being out, out of that actually is very healthy and refreshing sometimes, but no, I appreciate it. Thank you, Rudy. Thanks for the kind words. Man, it's so true. But when you get out of the U S like it, it just, things make so much sense. You don't have to do so much back back bending to be able to just like say that somebody that needs water should get water, you know, but in the U S <laughs> you have to get into the weirdest conversations just to say hey, what capitalism babies are starving. And you're talking about capitalism. It's crazy. <laughs> thanks, man. I'll, I'll, I'll leave. I appreciate you so yeah, much. Yeah, Thanks Rudy. Thanks. Yeah. Great. Great chatting with you. Great. So that was a fun conversation today. I always like doing these. I mean, I do two episodes a week and when I first started the show, I was originally like, thinking of doing it kind of like a normal podcast. But I, one of the thing I like about Colin is that, you know, anyone who's listening can just ask questions and, and I've always had very good discussions. So I want to thank everyone who joined as always, this episode is going to be available after there's an RSS feed, so it can be on podcast platforms and I will be, I'll be coming back to do another episode on Saturday, June 4th, and it's going to be around the same time. So definitely join me again on Saturday, June 4th. And, and I want to thank everyone who asked questions. If you have other questions or wanted to ask a question, definitely come back on Saturday. And I'll see you all next time. Thanks a lot.